How can we better equip ourselves to take on the new day, our goals, and the world? How do we stoke our inspiration? By dropping in, we'll hear from credible experts on ways to thrive in this environment. As persons trying to cope, as workers learning to pivot in our careers, and as those curious about life, wellness, family, healing, and humor, we'll learn by sharing stories. Like the watering hole, dropping in is a communal place. People who've had the courage to tell their stories offer the nuggets they've gathered along the way. They bring us the spark to confront what matters. Everybody everywhere is on a hero's journey of trying to survive and do well. Stories from these diverse sources pave the way, even if the paths are new or unknown. Drop in with us to discover the roots and where we go from here. And now, here's our host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's time to bust myths. We all know about the burqa, the hijab, the headscarf, but how many of us know anything about what goes on behind it? In a beautiful new book, Muslim Women Are Everything, Dr. Seema Yasmin will dispel the myth of one narrative, that of oppression or radicalism, and it will move the needle on ignorance. Thank you, Dr. Seema Yasmin, for writing it and for being with us on Dropping In. Thank you so much, Diane, for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. It's a book that um, challenged me and opened my eyes. I feel as though um, we do think that um, the Muslim, particularly the, the female dress, which you go into, I think, in a very pragmatic way. You draw diagrams in the book that's beautifully illustrated. But <laughs> we, we think it's about conservatism or worse, repression or worse, secrecy that represents terrorism. And we have to go there today because of the attacks in France. But none of this would be true. None of the many women who are documented in your book, Muslim Women Are Anything, would have achieved the mainstream success that they have if this was true. It's not repressive. It's not oppressive. Um, and we have to really counteract those those biases. That's was that was my takeaway, and I wondered if that was part of your goals in writing the book. Oh, it absolutely was, Diane. I think the world over, whether you're a French woman or a Malaysian woman or an American woman, you're used to being judged by what you wear, what's on the outside. And I wanted to dig deeper into that. Certainly, there are Muslim women around the world who are in oppressive communities or in oppressive relationships who are forced to do things they don't want to do. And I hate that. But there are just as many, if not more women, who are really empowered, really independent, and have made these deliberate decisions about how they want to appear. For some women, let's be honest, wearing a beautiful, silk, colorful hijab is a fashion statement. It's something that goes with their outfit. It, it shows what their mood is that particular day. For other women, it's really a sign that they are devout, that they want to cover, that they don't want to be judged actually for what's on their head or what's on their body. And so it's complicated. And really, we're talking about almost a billion women. When we think about Muslim women, we're talking about almost one billion people currently on the planet. How do you lump that many women together? You can't. And this book was really my effort to say, hey, everyone, we are not a monolith. 
among us are feminists, amongst us are conservative women, among us are women like me who don't wear a hijab, who don't cover, but also women like my aunts and my cousins who do choose to do that. And we all have such different reasons for making those decisions. You know, you brought up, I think, an excellent um, observation about paradox in the sense that the hijab or even the burqa, which is the full covering, I mean, we are in the West, unfortunately, um, prisoners of our own past of, you know, liberation, feminism, um, you know, burn your bra in the 60s. You know, honestly, if you are not exploiting your body by exposing it or overexposing it, which take a look at hip hop culture, uh, another generalization, parts of hip hop culture, or even, you know, social media, and you realize that the quote, liberation of the female body has reverted into kind of a backlash in the sense that, you know, we're being sexploited in a way, um, or we're sexploiting ourselves. In, in wearing a covering, you, you take the opportunity to take your body back in a way so that it's not an object, which is another, you know, another yeah. source of irony. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, like I said, I don't wear a burqa. I'm more comfortable in jeans or sweats or a nice dress. But when I talk to my cousins or friends who do, they find it really liberating because they're like, look, Seema, people can't see what fancy clothes or not fancy clothes I have on underneath. They can't see if I'm wearing makeup or if my hair's blown out or if it's a mess. They have to take me on my character, on what I'm saying, on how I'm articulating myself. And that can be really liberating for them, too. And also this idea that, you know, as women, we kind of can't win. Either we are too covered or we're not covered enough. And so it's really about women taking back that choice and saying there are politicians around the world, some imposing headscarves, others banning burkas in parts of the world. And it's about women just having the independence to express themselves, their faith, their spirituality in ways that feel good to them. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's integrated. I mean, it, it gives you a whole being. It makes a kind of a whole statement. And it's, as you say, democratic. You don't have to say, here's my status outfit. Here's my logos. Here's my, you know, it, it, it brings us into a unified space, which you point out in the book also occurs in Muslim prayer, because you pray shoulder to shoulder. You're not individuals at that moment. And there's something really lovely about that. I do also want to cite the fact that you you make this, I think, crystal clear, this idea of lumping together. That is what happens when a group is not recognized as beyond a minority. If you're a minority, all black people have to speak for one another. Um, all women have to answer for one another. Uh, all white people have to, uh, but they don't, right? White people don't have to answer for one another. Some are off carrying, um, you know, unfortunately, the swastika in Charleston. Others of us are really kind of crusading for you know, return to empathy. So, it's kind of when you cross that recognition that you don't keep having to answer for repression, for terrorism, for things that occur geopolitically um, that don't really have to do with being a Muslim per se. Isn't it time to not have to answer for everyone? It must be exhausting for you. 
it is exhausting because imagine that you meet somebody and they know that you're Muslim either from your appearance or because they just know this about you and there are all these assumptions laid on you about your spirituality, about your politics, about what you drink or don't drink, about how you might behave and what you might believe and how do you generalize when you're talking about 1.8 billion Muslims in total on the planet and a really increasing population of Muslims among us are people who who are radical leftists, but also people who are right-wing. You know, you'd be surprised. And it's to do with um, Muslims often being othered, often being stereotyped, and there's such danger in that single story, as if all Muslims speak for one another. Clearly we don't, and clearly we have our minorities who are really badly behaved, as we, we've seen in France recently. And it's painful that that then gets kind of painted with this broad brush for all 1.8 billion Muslims. And even, you know, previously in France, there have been politicians that say things like, you know, Muslims need to apologize. Why would I have to apologize for a terrorist doing awful things? They don't speak for me and they don't speak for my religion. But unfortunately, that is the world that we live in. And there are some disturbing stats about the U.S. in terms of how Many Americans, how few Americans actually know a Muslim, have a Muslim neighbor, have a Muslim cashier at the grocery store, have a Muslim physician, for example. You can really live in a bubble where all that you know about Muslims might come through the television, might come through the radio, right? And it might be a very singular story of Muslims. And the idea of this book was to just shatter all those stereotypes. And I haven't put in just women that I admire because there are some women in there that I kind of disagree with them, but I want to show you, hey, Muslim women are everything. Some of us are peaceful activists. Some of us, one of the historical figures in the book is a, a military woman who used to wreak havoc um, across parts of Nigeria. Do I agree with that? Not really, but she's also a Muslim woman and I don't get to take that away from her. And the thing that happens when you kind of other people or give them a very singular story is we don't get to be our full selves. And when we do get to be our full selves, we can be amazing and brilliant. We can also be really lazy. We can also be kind of mean because that's part of being human. And that was the point of, of writing this book and, and telling the stories of these incredible women. It is, it is diversity. It's, um, it's, a, it's a sampling across culture. And I think that you are correct. Uh, we often don't think we know, think we know a Muslim. I went ahead because the halal um, food that you described sounded so attractive and found out that there was a halal <laughs> restaurant here in St. Petersburg on Central Avenue. And I'm thinking, I would not have known that had I not read this book. There's such a dearth of education. There's such a dearth of the slice of life of a Muslim person. Um, and I think that that's something where your book goes a long way to educate us. Um, I'm just going to read a little book blurb here for our listeners. Tired of seeing Muslim women portrayed as weak, sheltered, and limited? Journalist Seema Yasmin reframes how the world sees them to reveal everything they can do and the incredible stereotype shattering ways they are doing it. Um, Showcasing women who defy categorization, Muslim women are everything, proves that to be Muslim and a woman is to be many things, strong, vulnerable, trans, disabled, funny, entrepreneurial, burqa or bikini clad, and so much more. 
And I think the um, the burkini w- was banned at one point in in France, right in the south of France. I, yes. We're having a moment um, where I think, right, claiming your humanity um, is is really part of this story, and not apologizing and and having to disavow the actions of a radical group in in France. But here's my question. If these caricatures are so important to French culture, but it's clearly boomeranging, it is taken as an insult to the Muslim culture and the Muslim religion. Why do we fan, why do we fan the flames of fanaticism by persisting in defying, um, for the sake of, quote, freedom of speech, that falls into the category of hate speech that's fanning divisiveness in this country as well. Sometimes you wonder about yeah. the limitations, the limitations of freedom mm-hmm. of speech. And should people be able to defame Muhammad and the, you know, icons of the Muslim faith? What do you think about that? I'm sorry to have to ask you these loaded questions. I'm doing the same thing. I'm guilty as charged. I'm guilty as charged. It's so, I know, and it's so sad for me that we can't just talk about the women, but of course this is in the news at the moment. I think while it's tempting to talk about the awful incidents in isolation because they're so awful, they're so tragic, it's important to think about the context as well and how disenfranchised many Muslim communities in France are from mainstream politics, how because of the burkini bans and the burqa bans and a lot of the political rhetoric has really distanced mainstream French culture from Muslim communities. So underneath all of what is happening is this community that feels really misunderstood, really ostracized. And when you don't have that dialogue, when you don't have people from those minority or minority majority communities at the table, then I think it makes it really hard to have full press freedom or full freedom of speech. I think many of us can be antagonized by, well, that's a really disrespectful thing. You know, in our faith, it's so important to not depict humans for many spiritual reasons. Like, why would you do this to one of the holiest people in our religion? And yet it can be less antagonistic when there's been that uh, dialogue around it. And so I think like, while it is tempting to speak about it in isolation, we also have to talk about decades of racism in France and, and decades of Islamophobia as well. And I think all of that gets to a boiling point and gets to a point where it makes it dangerous for a teacher to talk about these cartoons or show these cartoons in the classroom. And you also are pointing out, you know, the cross-ethnicity and races that that Islam encompasses. Um, We will leave it at that because we do want to return to this beautiful book, which I think absolutely erased the distance um, that we feel towards Muslim culture because we are looking at, we're saying hello to women who are breaking down barriers of different races, of different different ethnicities and countries um, from Denmark, um, from America, from um, Australia, from all around the world, the American superstar singer CZA. So when we come back from the commercial break, we're going to delve into some of these great personalities that you've profiled, Dr. Yasmin, in your book, Muslim Women Are Everything. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Seema Yasmin, and she has written a book called Muslim Women Are Everything. So you've captured now the concept that eludes us most of the time, that women who are Muslim are capable of multiple identities within the culture and within a person. Um, So what you've done, I think, was incredibly elucidating, Dr. Yasmin. You've taken us through very personal stories. Tasnim Sayar from Denmark, a Muslim goth punk who wears a red tartan mohawk on top of her hijab. Um, so that's just that's even just right, and that kind of crunches your brain together in in a certain way. Um, did, did as yeah. a person who has been an observer of this and personally involved with this um, it, it, this kind of humanization for a very long time? Um, did you have any surprises when you were writing the book? Were you even, I mean, I was blown away. I was in the happiest way blown away by some of these stories. I wondered if you felt any surprises. You know, one of the things that surprised me as I was researching some of these women is I know that, you know, women have it hard in many ways around the world, not just in some countries. The thing that did surprise me was just how persistent some of these women were. So, for example, even with Tasneem, you know, the Muslim goth punk, she couldn't find punk paraphernalia and clothing that would kind of also allow her to respect the modesty that she wants to practice. And so she started making her own. And I was like, I love that. I love that you didn't let it restrict you, that some of the punk and goth clothing was too revealing for you um so i loved that and then i loved that some of the women race car drivers for example just kept being told you can't be a race car driver because you're a woman and i think at what point do you give up because these women were just kept fighting for their right to do this sport that they love and whether it's this group of women in palestine called the speed sisters who take regular Mm -hmm. cars Um, And they scoop them up and turn them into racing cars and they race the men and they keep beating the men. (laughs) So the men are like, "Mm, we should exclude you because you're women. And they're like, no, we are great. And so I love that they were just persistent. Even all these rules were kind of levied against them to kind of inch them out. 
Then there's also Lala Sadiq, who's an Iranian Formula One race car driver. She looks fantastic. She's got red hair and she wears red lipstick and she's in her leather outfit. And they keep also trying to exclude her because she's fantastic. And oftentimes she will win first place. But the Iranian state television, as they're televising the awards, won't show her in first place on the podium. They'll just cut to second place and third place and show the men. And I think... My gosh, that's so infuriating. And I was just pleasantly surprised and also really inspired by how amazingly persistent and dedicated these women were. Not that they wouldn't get down, not that they weren't frustrated too by the roadblocks, sometimes literal roadblocks, but that they just kept going. And I think especially now in the midst of not just one crisis, but a pandemic and a recession and protests against racial inequity it's easy to just feel really like despairing and this can't get better and for me researching and writing about these women was like oh no this is proof that humans can be really resilient when we put our minds to something we can fight to make things more equal and more fun and more inclusive for everyone so I think even though I kind of expected that a bit it did surprise me. It's inspiring and it begs the question of what can we do when we feel helpless um, at times or despairing, you know, what what can we take action? And maybe it's putting pedal to the metal, Um, you know, maybe it's just making a, a personal statement. And I think that it's important for our listeners to understand your context, because you are also inspiring and really um, a champion, a great role model. Um, and I think um, having provided this platform in this book, you're doing um, good in the world in terms of helping us not despair. So Dr. Seema Yasmin is an Emmy award-winning journalist, medical doctor, disease detective, and author. She was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Breaking News Reporting in 2017 with her team from the Dallas Morning News for reporting on a mass shooting. Yasmin is, was a disease detective in the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where she chased outbreaks, outbreaks in maximum security prisons, American Indian reservations, border towns, and hospitals. Currently, Dr. Yasmin is a Stanford professor and medical analyst for CNN. We're truly honored to have you with us. But it also just makes it so complicated. You have so many layers that you're addressing (laughs) right now, right? You are in the COVID-19 layer because you have also now you're an epidemiologist. And this is also citing the idea of isolation. Isolated cultures are more susceptible Mm -hmm. to these outbreaks. This continues to be a theme for you, does it not? It's seems like an echo absolutely yeah I love connecting the dots between people and you picked up really beautifully on something a bit earlier Diane where you talked about the way Muslims pray shoulder to shoulder with one another the way 
we do pilgrimage, when you go to Mecca, everyone wears the same white shroud, the same white shroud that we will be buried in. So you can't tell who's a prince, who's a pauper, who's a Silicon Valley CEO, who's a janitor. And I think one of the beautiful things about the religion and the faith is that even though there are 1.8 billion of us, and even though we often disagree on so many things, the common core themes about equality, about doing the right thing, about believing that we'll be judged in the afterlife for our actions, so you have to be charitable, you have to be kind, you have to be hospitable. That's what really connects us. And so even though Islam is a religion, being Muslim is your faith, we span the globe, right? So you get Sudanese Muslims who maybe do things a little bit differently to their their northern neighbors, their Egyptian Muslims, who may do things differently to American Muslims. And even within America, you have many African-American Muslims. You have Arab Muslims. You also have many Arabs who are Christian and who don't have anything to do with Islam, really. So I love connecting the dots and thinking about that, that level of community. And I will say for me, because you kind of, people may be wondering, wait, she went to medical school and then she was a disease detective and then she went to journalism school. A lot of that for me has come from being told that because of who I am, I can't do something. So when I was in high school, I was interested in medicine and I had teachers say to me, look, no one in your family is a doctor. Uh, people in your family don't really go on to higher education. So you shouldn't apply to medical school because it'll be a waste of your time. You won't get in. And so I didn't initially. My teachers weren't trying to be mean. I think they were trying to be realistic and I believed them. And I really limited myself because of other people's beliefs. And even recently, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book, a biography of my mentor who was an HIV doctor searching for a cure for HIV. And he was sadly killed in 2014 when the Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 was shot down over the Ukraine. And so I wrote a book about his life because he was incredible and he was close to finding a cure for HIV. But when that book came out, there was an audiobook company that bought the rights. And I thought, amazing, my book's going to be an audiobook. And they said, yes, but we don't want you to narrate it because it's a book about science. We think a man <gasps> should narrate it. And no. I was like, but wait, I, I wrote it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a woman, but yeah. I managed to write it. And then also um, a couple of years ago, I was pitched to host a television show about, guess what, pandemics. And there were these senior television execs who said, oh, she's great. She's a doctor and a disease detective and she's trained in journalism, but it's going to be a TV show about science. So we think a man should host it. And these are, no. this is from 2018 and 2019. It's so very recent. You almost don't believe that people would say that out loud, but it, they might just try and couch it in some other language. But I think that being told that, no, because you're a woman or because you're this or that, you can't do these things also really pushes me to be like, no, but I want to do these things. I want to narrate my audio book. I want to make TV shows about science. And I think it's so important that young girls see people like me, see women at the forefront of science really telling those stories. Absolutely. The absence of role models. And I think also, you know, you touched on creating, um, creating uh, modest clothing, um, creating makeup that, glow, that goes with the hijab, creating like these creative forces that come out to to create this identity to manifest an identity and i think that muscle probably gets exercised a lot more for muslim women because yeah. of being told <laughs> no i mean you know i'd love to say women are united together in the sisterhood it was Margaret Thatcher, I distinctly remember this, and now it seems like ages ago, thankfully it was, 
you know, who said, if you want something done, ask a woman. If you want something said, ask a man. I mean, hello, can we stop shooting ourselves in the foot also? I mean... Right. I'm so, I'm so glad you bring up Margaret Thatcher, though, because she was prime minister when I was born. And um, we actually say we had a nursery rhyme tune about her that said, Margaret Thatcher milk snatcher, because we used to get given um, lovely cold bottles glass bottles of milk with a blue straw when I was a little girl um, in primary school and Margaret Thatcher got rid of that. (laughs) So she did many things that we didn't like and and you're right, we're not this lovely kumbaya unified movement and not all Muslim women um, even identify with Muslim as being their faith. They talk about being culturally Muslim. And so that's the reality of it. And I didn't want to gloss over that at all and be like, look, all of us, we are so connected. Even if we wear hijab or if we don't No, I've been on panels. I am with other Muslim women where I have so vehemently disagreed with their ideologies, their politics, even their interpretations of Islam. And the whole point of writing the book was to say, look how divided we can be too. And I think it's good to be honest and transparent about that. I think there's power in that truth as opposed to pretending, look, all women are feminists or all women are not feminists or we all agree with one another when we really don't. It's really disempowering to suggest that we're homogeneous. And I think, um, you know, Dr. Cornell West, who wrote Race Matters, really touched on this. It's like you don't have to be the same. And in fact, when you do that, you do lose your humanity. And I think your book, Muslim Women Are Everything, cited example after example of just how individualistic Muslim women can be. And that this, yes. this is the power, not that we homogenize ourselves, not that, and I'm, now I'm saying ourselves, you know, there were times when I was reading your book that I thought to myself, yeah. that sounds like actually a really attractive religion because, you know, it, it and, does encompass yeah. a culture and a lifestyle. Yes, I don't want to interrupt oh, absolutely. you. And Diane, I, I wrote this book knowing that some Muslims would pick it up and be like, why is there a transgender Muslim in here? That's not in line with Islam. And the reason I wanted to tell that story about trans Muslim women, about disabled Muslim women, about Muslim women with all sorts of different ideologies was because who gets to decide who's a Muslim? That's a personal statement. And so even though I knew that that could be divisive, good, I want to agitate and I want people to really think about how good of a human that they can be, that even if they disagree, that they will extend kindness, hospitality, and understanding to people that they think, quote unquote, kind of break the rules of the religion. And I will say, you know, we talk about intersectional identity and intersectional oppression as well. It was very important to me to include disabled women. It was very important to me to include women who are black. And in fact, one of the things that people have said to me is, oh, I really want to buy your book. Are there black Muslim women in there? And I'm thinking to myself, yes, there are, but I know why you're asking, because so often black women are excluded from conversations about Islam. And sometimes when I'm asked to speak about the religion or about journalism and coverage of Muslims, I'm on a panel with only other South Asian and Middle Eastern people, as if we represent all of Islam. And I have to say, we need black representation. About one in five or one in four Muslims in America is black. And so when we start to erase and exclude people, we're not telling the truth about the diversity within the faith, within the spirituality. And so that was really important to me as well. 
Let's try to walk and chew gum at the same time, as Joe Biden said. <laughs> you know, let's try to be more than one thing at once. It's it's not it's not only not impossible; it's inevitable. Um, you talk yeah, about yeah, you know, and I sorry, Diana. Yes. I just want to say, you know, I talk about we are not a monolith as the entire community, but then as individuals, we're not one fixed thing either. I used to wear a hijab. Now I don't. And so our moods can shift. Our ideas can shift over our lifetimes. And I wanted to speak the truth to that as well. It's evolution. And we're organic beings. And of course, we're going to change. And I think it's lovely that you cited that. Um, This is uh, not um, the hallmark of weakness. This is the hallmark of strength, that you're discovering more and more and becoming more and more in tune with yourself as a person. Imagine a hijab-wearing scuba diving midwife from Australia, Liliana (laughs) Insira. Um, She's one of the, the persons profiled. And you touched on the trans population who must feel incredibly left out. You were inclusive of them, I'm glad. And also the gay population. Um, and I think there's a lot of, right, it's, it, it's undercover sort of download that like came out um, quite a bit in this book, which is a healthy, healthy thing. We have a few minutes left and we've talked just a bit about governmental officials. And so it invites, um, it invites our observation of Ilhan Omar, America's first Muslim congresswoman from the Somali uh, enclave in in. Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, and who was immediately um, put down by um, those in office in this country um, and and really capitalized as a, a target for, you know, right before she was elected, the sitting president, you know, gave a speech saying, you see what happens when you are penetrated by, you know, these immigrants that you're then inviting terrorism Holy smokes, can we please get over ourselves and get beyond ourselves and get to a message of generosity um, and, and love, for heaven's sake. And also, she is just about to, cross fingers, be reelected because she's been so representative of her people. Isn't that what we're supposed to be about? Um, how do you get past the conversation of this administration, or do you, is, I guess, a question for you, Doctor. Oh, we, we do. And oh, we do. And I have faith and I think it's important. You know, like I said, that it's easier sometimes and very natural to be like, oh my gosh, things are not changing. Things are just getting worse. But that's why I think this book is bright yellow. It's illustrated beautifully as a beacon of hope, I think, you know, in, in difficult times to kind of keep doing that work of reminding people uh, of saying, look, we, we need to be more inclusive. We need to be more open-minded. We need to do the work individually. I have my biases too that I need to work on. Um, and we don't progress. We don't make our world better. We don't make a world where my nieces, hopefully, are never told, no, you can't do this because you're a woman. Um, we don't get there unless we keep doing that work and we keep having female role models as imperfect as they might be because nobody is perfect. And I think it's really important to talk about imperfect role models, but I do think that we can evolve and we can progress and we can get better even when it feels like the highest office in the land and the most powerful officials are just 
belittling us, saying very dangerous things. I think there's power in the people. I think there's power in books. I think books can change the world, which is why I am an author. So I, I hope this book goes some way to opening people's minds, to reminding them that not all Muslims are from Pakistan, not all Muslims are from Saudi Arabia, even something as simple as that. And for myself, for example, I grew up in a family that was very conservative, felt that music was a distraction and was un-Islamic. But this book has Muslim women rock stars and and singers. And so I love celebrating that diversity. Yes, Dr. Yasmin, you've done a lot of shattering of myths and we congratulate you. When we come back from a commercial break, words do have meaning and CZA developed her stage name using the Supreme Alphabet. Let's delve into some of these interesting characters when we come back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Seema Yasmin, a polymath yourself and an inspiring I think an inspiring role model because you also talk about imperfection, what it means to be human, what it means to be democratic and united in our individuality, in acceptance of our individuality. You've picked up a pen. You've written these words in the book, Muslim Women Are Everything. It's bright. It's beautiful. It's illustrated. And tell us again the name of your illustrator and partner in this book. So the illustrator is an incredible artist called Fahmida Azim. For every woman that's celebrated in the book, Muslim Women Are Everything, Fahmida's painted a portrait that just shows them in all of their glory. And you can also find her work in the New York Times, on NPR.com. She has a children's picture book coming out soon. So she's very, very talented. And I love the way she's brought these women to life through stunning images. Mm-hmm. It's just great to have the visual image of, uh, you know, a, a, a scuba diving, uh, hijab wearing, uh, or, 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 you know, the race car driver or the punk goth or, you know, the trans person. I, I think, you know, it's it's bravery and it's coming out of the shadows and coming out of a sense of, um, of secrecy into openness and into light. Um, you, you're mentioning one of the examples, the Senegalese schoolgirl who became a teacher, feminist activist, 
and a world-renowned novelist. Um, this is Mariana, who wrote So Long a Letter is the name of her tome. It's considered one of the first feminist novels written by a West African woman to show how cross-political and cross-geopolitical Muslim women are everything goes. It's inspired countless women to pick up a pen and write. And I would suggest that your book will have the same effect. Mariama writes, we cannot go forward without culture, without saying what we believe, without communicating with others, without making people think about things. Books are a weapon, a peaceful weapon, perhaps, but they are a weapon. Um, I wanted to give this weapon, with this weapon as a as a holiday gift to my my you know female friends because but it yeah. does have it does have a, a it does have that kind of intrinsic weaponizing effect. Words matter, and words change yeah. us. It's been life changing yeah. for me to read this book. Um, so congratulations for that. Um, did you count on this effect? Um, you, were, you were published by HarperCollins, a mainstream publisher. Um, I, I think that's quite validating. And what has been the effect um, for you uh, having written the book? I love hearing the comments from people that, oh, I bought this book for myself, but my 11-year-old son won't let me have it back because he loves the pictures and he loves the stories. So I really appreciate how these women are inspiring to so many of us across age groups. And you know, we talk about diversity a lot, and I think people immediately jump to gender and race. But for me, as a youngish kind of woman, it was so important to have diversity of age as well, because I think we learn from women at different stages of their life. And so there are older women in there. There are teenagers and much younger women, too. But that was really important to me. And Diane, the whole time that I was writing this, of course, you have your audience in mind. You're thinking about that little girl who wants to be inspired or that fed up woman in her in the middle of her life, who's like, oh my gosh, everything is so messed up. Is it going to get better? I was writing this book for everyone, but at the forefront of my mind, as a journalist who talks a lot about the media representation of Muslim, I had in my mind some statistics, very recent ones, done by some journalism organizations that found that roughly half of Americans do not know a Muslim, that 90% of coverage about Muslims in the American press is negative, and that by their analysis, the New York Times portrays Islam more negatively than cancer and cocaine. So I knew that's what I was up against. This is what the experts are saying to us. They're also saying that when someone's an alleged criminal, that Muslim perceived defendants receive 770% more media coverage than those defendants and alleged criminals who are not Muslim. And so this book was important to shatter all of that, to celebrate, to kind of mix it up, remind people that Muslims can be Malaysian, they can be middle-aged authors, they can be teenage choreographers, they can be very young ballerinas who wear a hijab and a tutu and get kicked out of the ballet studio because they're told you can't wear a hijab, but they carry on anyway. And that's really what's at the heart of this book. We may know a Muslim, but we don't know that we know a Muslim. That's another possibility. Because I, I've realized that, and I, I think what you're speaking to is really the crux of this whole matter. If you have to defend your humanness, like the fly girl, Cambridge author, uh, Suya, Suya Maya, 
she writes that, you know, if reduced to proving my life is human because it's relatable, this is because you need me to prove my humanity. And actually, that says more about us. So if we're harboring the journalistic tools, we're harboring the criminal justice system, it is speaking Mm -hmm. more to us and what we hold in us to have to prove yourself when you are a human being. That speaks to us. It doesn't speak to the Muslim population. And, and so hard in the introduction, that. Diane, I even show the tweet that ignited this book and created this book because it was a tweet from me a couple of years ago where I was so fed up of the way that corporations and institutions and society was kind of, quote unquote, celebrating Muslim women. Like a Muslim woman would, would win an Olympic medal and they'd be like, oh my gosh, Muslim women are athletes? Look at this Muslim woman, congratulations. And I was like, you're really telling on yourselves. Like, do you not think we're athletes? And so I tweeted something like, oh my gosh, I'm so fed up of like, look at this Muslim woman. She can code. This one can kickbox. This one's an Olympic athlete. And so I sent that tweet and an editor said to me, can you turn this into an essay? And I said, no, because I didn't want to write one of those. Look at us Muslim women. We bleed just like you. We're just like all other Muslim women because I didn't want to have to prove my humanity to anybody else. People should already see that we are human. And actually, I then ended up writing a prose poem for a newspaper that Fahmida also illustrated called Muslim Women Do Things. Yes, Muslim Women Do Things. And it was fictional. But I wrote about Muslim women doing amazing things. Here's a Muslim woman taking a nap. Here's a Muslim woman (laughs) reading a book. And it was really my like, come on, everyone, what do you think? Here's a Muslim woman doing open heart surgery because some of us are like that. Some of us are also really lazy. Some of us are unemployed. Some of us have bad habits. Some of us do our laundry too late. And some of us are astronauts, you know, as you read about in this book. So that was kind of the genesis of this. It was my frustration that come on, everyone, what do you think we do? What do you think we do? Exactly. It's systemic. It's really, it's really quite permeating. There's a lot more work to be done. It almost suggests that there should be another book. But, you know, as you say, well, let's see us doing laundry. Let's see us going to outer space. Let's see us being neuroscientists. Let's see us being imperfect. And athletes, well, athletes from countries that, uh, and cultures that were formerly enemies of ours, Germany, um, you know, Japan, uh, Russia. I mean, somehow this is accepted. And we still have so much further to go with the Muslim community. And I hope that your book is a stepping stone in that direction. We have just a few minutes left. I hate for this conversation to draw to a close. Do you think there'll be another book from you, Dr. Yasmin? I definitely lose sleep about some of the amazing women who I just didn't have enough space for in this book. And I think, oh, people should know about this woman who's a boxer, this woman who's a peace activist amongst gangs, this woman who's a prison abolitionist, this woman who's a poet. So I definitely think about that. I'd love for there to be volumes two, three, four, and five. Let's see. Um, Right now, I have a book coming out in January that's very different to this. It's called Viral BS medical myths and why we fall for them because in my other life I do research on the spread of health hoaxes and misinformation and disinformation which 
very relevant right now, but I've been studying this for a few years and writing about it for a few years. So that book will finally come out in January. And then in April, I have my debut poetry collection coming out, which is also very related to what's happening, except I started writing it five years ago. And the poetry book is called If God is a Virus. And it's poems from when I was in West Africa reporting on the Ebola epidemic. I came back to the States. I did my newspaper pieces, my magazine pieces. But then the stories of the Ebola survivors really stayed with me. And so I've written this book of poems about that. Well, you have an incredible aptitude for myth-busting and for um, (laughs) making associations, both of which are incredibly valuable to our thinking. I also just want to say that we will follow you if the books become a documentary and even, you know, uh, video, digital documentary, I would be right there with them as well. These role models are incredibly important to reduce the schizophrenia that individuals feel being Muslim and gay, being this disparate thing and this disparate thing, all the labels that we have to try to remove so that we can just go about the business of being. And uh, the book is Muslim Women Are Everything. And at times, they're nothing. They're lazy. They're they're as we all are human. (laughs) I just want to really thank you. Dr. Seema Yasmin for being with us today, for exploiting and really busting up tokenism and for helping us to understand one another in ways that we really don't have the opportunity to become enlightened about. As you go about your week, remember that our differences are our bond and that at one point, every friend was once a stranger. Thank you to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, our producer, Robert Cialino. And most of all, to our listeners, stay safe, be well, and vote. And go see Seema Yasmin, Twitter, Dr. Yasmin, and Instagram, Dr. Seema Yasmin, and see the book. It will open you up in ways you never guessed. Thanks very much for dropping in, and thanks for being with us, Dr. Yasmin. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 